Colossians chapter 1 verse 1 to 8 and Barb Weatherstone's going to read that for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God for the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful or who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And we give thanks to God for that. Shall we bow in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for this uh, precious time uh, now that we can focus on your word and uh, our children can as well. We pray, Father God, that you would give us spiritual insight and understanding that we would live lives that are worthy of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you need to believe me on this one. I quite honestly made a big mistake this morning and I forgot to bring with me to church the spectacles that I need in order to see properly. Um, if I'm wearing the... But rather than panic, I thought I'm going to weave this in to the talk that I'm giving because the, the reality is that these glasses I'm wearing now, uh, with them on, I can see you clearly. But when I look down on the Word of God, it's all a blur. It's fuzzy. Take them off, and the Word of God is clear, and you are not only in the darkness, but you're also a big blur to me. And I like things to be clear. Do you like things to be clear? Yep, so I'm going to leave my, leave my glasses off so at least I can see the word of God clearly, all right? The other thing I don't like is uh, things that are blunt. It's like, you know, when you're uh, using a pencil and you're using it for a while and it starts to go blunt and it just gets harder. You, you need to sharpen it, don't you? And uh, friends, I think that uh, sometimes the gospel is like that. Um, because we might begin our Christian life having heard a clear and sharp presentation of the gospel, but uh, as we go through life, sometimes the message of the gospel can become a bit blurry and a bit blunt. Now, it's, there are a number of ways in which this happens. Uh, one is just pure sinfulness, as we get sort of drawn along by the things of the world. But the, one, the issues I want to think about today are uh, things such as this. Uh, sometimes in our, you know, what is often a godly desire to be united with other Christians, uh, we can soften or we can 
uh, take away some aspects of the gospel that other people find a little bit unpalatable. Uh, issues such as sin and judgment, uh, or I've noticed a lot these days, the actual atonement, the death of Christ on our behalf, because some people feel a bit uncomfortable with these truths. And so uh, we can water them down, or we can not emphasise them quite as much, just so that we can have peaceful relationships with others. Another way it happens is that we may hear about new teachings or fresh things which God's Spirit is doing, and these are things which, uh, which add to the gospel with the promise that they will make us more complete as Christians. So the gospel is good, they say, but there is a greater experience, there is a higher knowledge that uh, through which you can experience the full blessings of what God wants for you. And you know what happens? Well, the, the message of the gospel becomes blurry, it becomes blunt, and it gets shunted to one side. Now, over the next few weeks, next couple of months actually, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. And as we do that, we'll, we're going to uh, see that the, that the Christians in, that, in, in Colossae started off with a clear and a sharp gospel message, but uh, it seems that they were at least at risk of losing focus. Uh, they were at risk of their understanding of the gospel becoming blunt. And so the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to them. Now, uh, before we look into this letter, uh, I think some background may help. Um, has anyone here ever been to the area where Colossae was? Anyone ever been to Colossae? Mary's been to Colossae. Margaret's been to Colossae, or at least to the area. I know that Margaret's been to Ephesus, and uh, I know that because as she walked in the door today, she handed me this book, which was her... Uh, one of those tourist things that she picked up when she was in Ephesus, is that right? And I've just had a bit of a flip through it and I found a picture of the uh, theatre where they dragged Paul into uh, when there was this conflict between what Paul was preaching and the people that were uh, making the idols for uh, Artemis, the great goddess of, uh, of Ephesus. So... Uh, Thanks for the book, Margaret. Appreciate that. And, and it's helpful because it actually reminds us that we're talking about real places here with real people, places where you can go and visit uh, even today. And if you look at the map on your, sheet, on your uh, sheets there on the front, uh, I've got a map there of what is current-day Turkey or what we would call current-day Turkey. And uh, you can see where Colossae is. Can everyone see Colossi uh, on that map? I'd have a look for it. It's uh, in the southern, southeast, southwest part of the map. Uh, it had once been a great city, but uh, my understanding is that by the time of the first century, its uh, significance and its importance had diminished. Uh, it was part of a cluster of towns which were uh, built along uh, the, uh, the va in a valley uh, along the Lycus River, uh, which was a tributary of a river which was called the Meander River. Uh, 
and guess what? It kind of meandered. Uh, that's why it's called Meander River. In that area, they grew figs and olives. It was that kind of climate and terrain. Uh, there was a terrible earthquake in 60 AD in this region, and uh, we don't know the exact impact of that uh, earthquake on the town of Colossae, but what we do know is that there ain't much left of it now. And, uh, in fact, uh, all that's left of Colossae is an invitation. Uh, it's an invitation to the archaeologist's spade to get in there and start digging and uh, recovering the ruins of Colossae. Uh, up the road from Colossae uh, is where Margaret has visited, uh, and that's the city of Ephesus, where you can go there today and see the ruins. Uh, the Apostle Paul lived in Ephesus for two years. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, we read that uh, he based himself in Ephesus and uh, every day for two years in a place which was called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus, that uh, you could go to that lecture hall and you could, you, could, uh, you could sit there and you could listen to the Apostle Paul expounding the scriptures every day for two years. How about that, eh? I, I mean, would you... Would you get along to hear Paul expounding the scriptures at the lecture? There was one bloke we know who, who did get along to it, and he was a, a, a man from Colossae. Uh, there may have been others from Colossae, because there was people from all over that region would go there to hear Paul. Uh, the man from Colossae was named Epaphras, and uh, he sat under the teaching of Paul. He was taught the gospel... And Epaphras took that gospel message back home to Colossae and he shared the gospel message with others. There were people who believed the gospel and a church uh, was born uh, in Colossae through the ministry of Epaphras. Uh, if, you if you have a look in Colossians chapter 1, if you might want to turn that open, it's on page 833. And um, have a look at how Paul, what Paul says down in verse 7, uh, where he says to these Christians in Colossae, he says, talks about the gospel, and he says, You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Now, it may be that Paul never visited uh, Colossae himself. He may have, but we just don't have the clear evidence of it. In the companion letter, or the other letter that's written to, uh, in, into Colossae, which is Philemon, he expresses his intention to go and visit them, but we don't know for sure that he ever actually did get to visit them uh, in Colossae. But what we do know is that Epaphras, having established the church, has now gone back to Paul, um, Paul is not lecturing in the t lecture hall of Tyrannus anymore. He is elsewhere. But Epaphras has gone to Paul, and the reason he's gone to see him because he has some concerns that there are some issues that are that are developing in the Colossian church, and that the message of the gospel was at least at very real risk of becoming blurred, uh, of becoming. Um, uh, blunted, and that by the teaching 
of some newcomers, some, some false teachers uh, that had wormed their way into the church. And so the Colossian Christians, like that pencil I talked about, you know, it gets blunt, they needed some sharpening up. And uh, that's why Paul writes this letter to them. Now, by the way, when Paul wrote this letter, he, uh, as I say, he wasn't lecturing anymore in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, Paul wrote this letter from prison. Uh, we're not exactly sure. He, Paul was in and out of prison so many times that uh, yeah, we don't know which prison he was writing from. Most scholars believe that he was writing from prison in Rome. Uh, it is possible that he may have been writing uh, from prison in Ephesus as well. So the fact that we don't know is because the Bible doesn't tell us. If the Bible doesn't tell us, it means we don't really need to know. Um, it's more of a side issue. The, the important thing is what he wrote, not where he wrote it from. Although the fact that he wrote it from prison is an expression of the cost that he paid for the sake of the gospel. He was in chains because of the gospel of Jesus. Now that's enough background. You got the picture? All right, well, let's, let's kind of launch into the introduction to the letter. And can I start by saying that when you and I write a letter to someone, does anyone still write letters these days, by the way? Yeah, some people do occasionally, yeah. Rex does. Good on you, Rex. Uh, you know, well, the way I was taught at school to write letters is you always started off by saying, dear so-and-so, the person that you're writing to. And then you'd write your letter and at the end you'd say, yours sincerely or with love from or if you're a Christian in Christ from and you'd sign it yourself. Now, letters in the ancient world were written on scrolls and I guess it may have been a little bit impractical to have to wait till you got to the end of the scroll before you could figure out who the person was that had written to you. And so they had a customary form of introductions in ancient letter writing and the way it was... It went like this. Firstly, the author of the letter would say who they are. Then, secondly, they would say who the recipient is. Uh, thirdly, they would wish the recipient the blessing of peace. And fourthly, they would say to the recipient that they have been uh, thanking their gods you know, for them. And then they'd get down to the business as to why they were writing now, what Paul does in his letters is he takes that cultural form of letter, he takes that custom, but he fills it. He fills it out, he changes it, he fills it out with, uh, with gospel truth. Let's, let's have a look at how he does that, shall we? Um, first of all, uh, in verse 1, he says who he is. He says, Paul, and then he describes himself as being an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, the, the word apostle means sent one. Um, you may remember on the road to Damascus that Paul had met the resurrected uh, Jesus Christ and then later on uh, the uh, Ananias had come to him and uh, Jesus had commissioned Paul to be sent and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so what he's doing here at the very beginning of the letter is that he is establishing his authority. 
And he also includes his co-worker Timothy. Timothy didn't write the letter. Timothy was with Paul and Timothy's saying here as an expression of fellowship, this is coming from both myself and from Timothy. I love the name Timothy. Uh, it means uh, to honour God. Timer, honour, theos, God. To honour God. What a great name. Anyone called Timothy here? Okay. Well, if you're going to have kids, name, name someone Timothy. All right. Now, so firstly, he says who he is. Secondly, he says who they are. Uh, and in verse 2, he describes, he says, I'm, I'm writing to, to you people, the Colossians, and he describes them as being the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Um, to be holy, what does it mean? It means to be set apart. Same word, uh, uh, kind of word that we use for the word saint. A holy person, it's, it's not, a holy person is someone who is set apart for God. Uh, and you know what? If you're a person for whom Christ has died and you've put your faith in Christ, then you've been set apart for God. You're a holy person. You may or may not have stained glass windows with your face in and with a you know, saucepan behind your head and that sort of thing. That's not what a saint, you know, a holy person is. A holy person is a person who's set apart by God, for God. And if Christ has died for you, friends, he's died for a reason. He's died so that you now live for God. And it's why Paul is able to describe the Colossians as being the, uh, the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, thirdly, he gives them a blessing, a blessing of grace and peace from God our Father. These for Paul are not just polite but empty words. No, he means them. He wishes them grace. Grace is God's favour. God's favour which we do not deserve. God's favour which is expressed in the gift to sinners of God's own Son, Jesus, to pay for our sins. God's gracious gift. And it's a gift that God has given us so that we might enjoy peace. Now, peace in the ancient world uh, uh, meant um, uh, the opposite of war. Uh, it also meant overall wholeness and well-being. And you see that particularly in the... Hebrew word shalom. Paul wishes them the blessing of grace and peace. Now, you see, later on in this letter, Paul describes what they used to be like. If you have a look down in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. That is how they describe them, as being alienated from God. Enemies in their minds. That is how they were. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says that they were dead in their sins. That's who these people were. But now, because of the gospel, they have experienced God's forgiving grace. And they are no longer at enmity with God. They're at peace with God. A peace which starts now in the wholeness and the well-being of their lives. And a peace which extends through into all of eternity. Grace and peace from God, 
our Father. Now, fourthly, Paul then takes the pagan custom of thanking the gods and making it truly Christian. He wants the Colossians to, uh, to know that, you see, that although he's not met most of them, because, as, as I said, Paul's probably never went to Colossae, and he hasn't met these people, but he wants them to know that he really thanks God for them. And not just some false Greek God. But what does he say? The true God, the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God who he thanks. Now, I want to encourage us to be thankful to God for each other. You know, in church life, it's, uh, you know, you've got a community of people who you know, come together and are passionate and so on, and it's, it's easy sometimes to tread on each other's toes and annoy each other a little bit, isn't it? And sometimes to you know, get a bit critical and point out faults and so on. The antidote to that is to remember what God has done in each of our lives and in our own life. To remember the fact that that person who might have, you know, trod on your toes is a person who once was living in darkness, who once was in enmity with God, but is now, through the grace of God, at peace with him. And think of how profound that is, that that has happened. That ought to give us cause for endless gratitude and thankfulness to him. And so... Paul thanks God for the Colossians. And how does he do that? Well, let's have a look at verses 3 through to 5. I'm going to read this for us. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So why is Paul thankful? Well, he's thankful that, uh, you know, although there are problems that are looming in the Colossian church, this church is actually quite healthy. What makes a church healthy? It's not numbers, it's not finance, it's not buildings, it's not lots of activities. Um, these things may be very, very good things to have, of course. But in Paul's mind, there are three things which are the mark of a healthy church. What are they? They're in a the text there. Faith, love and hope. Okay. And what he says here is that we are really thankful because we have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they've believed the gospel. That they've trusted in Jesus who's brought them out of darkness into the light of the kingdom. When we think of each other, do we thank God for that? In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says that there is only one thing that matters. Faith expressing itself through love. It's the only thing that matters. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. 
Because when we are truly grateful for Christ's death on our behalf, then our hearts are going to be changed. And we're going to want to act in a manner towards other people in the same way that God has acted towards us, with grace, with love. Not only to our brothers and sisters, but to all people. And it's that kind of faith that expresses itself in love, which is very, very attractive. It's that kind of faith expressing itself in love where others see the love that we have for one another and the love that we express for them and they say, I want more of that myself. I want to find out what makes these people tick. Faith expressing itself through love. Now, why did the Colossians have this faith and love? Well, in verse 5, it is because of hope. The hope that Paul says is stored up for them in heaven. That's what it's all about, don't you think? I mean, Christ's death and his resurrection means that, uh, that we will enjoy all of eternity with God in his perfect heaven. And so when we trust in Christ, when we know that that is our future, it puts a whole lot of stack of stuff in perspective. That the whole of eternity is where we will be sharing with, we'll be sharing with God in his heaven. And this 70, 80, 90, however years God wants to give us on this earth is actually very, very small and significant. And so the hope of glory ought to actually impact the way that we live now and get it into perspective so that our petty grievances should be put aside and we should be filled with love. It is faith and love which springs from hope. Now, we don't know all of the details about the false teaching that was infecting the Colossian church. But it may be that these people who who had come in were blurring and blunting the message on this matter of hope, our heavenly future. Because Paul here wants to remind the Colossians that their heavenly future is stored up. Do you see he uses that word? It's stored up. It's safe. It's secure. It can't diminish. It can't be taken away. It is fixed. It is stored up because of Christ. And he wants them to be clear and sharp about these truths. And so in verses 5 through to 8, he then reminds them about their experience of the gospel. And do you see how he describes the gospel in verse 5? What does he describe it as? He describes it as being the word of truth. The word of truth. The true word as opposed to the false word. And friends, when we get deeper into this letter, we're going to learn more about this false word and what it was that was infecting the church in Colossae. But here, with apostolic authority, Paul says in verse 7 that the true word is the word which they learnt not from these newcomers, but it is the word that they learnt from Epaphras. He wants to endorse Epaphras. Now, what kind of man was Epaphras? Well, in verse 7, the apostle considers Epaphras to be a dear fellow servant 
and a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. They're good words coming from the Apostle Paul, aren't they? To have said about anyone. Uh, if you, um, Paul actually says more about Epaphras later on in the letter. If you just come with me over to chapter 4 for a moment, just over the page. Uh, actually, verse 10 is interesting because he there talks about my fellow prisoner Aristarchus, uh, and that's kind of the evidence that Paul is in chains when he's writing this letter. Uh, but if you go to verse 12, he talks about Epaphras, and he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, so he's from Colossae, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him. Wrestling in prayer. What sort of image does that conjure up in your mind? It's not just the occasional shooting up a quick arrow prayer to God, is it? Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Pray to God any time you want. But this is a picture of a man who seriously agonises with God in prayer. This is a man who's com- who... Prayer's hard work, don't you find? It's because there's so many things that want to tempt us away from praying that we've got to be really disciplined if we want to be uh, consistently and faithfully and carefully praying for people. We've got to battle against the world, the flesh and the devil in order to pray because Satan doesn't want you to pray because prayer is the way by which God works. Epaphras wrestled in prayer. He wrestled in prayer that they would stand firm, that they would be mature, that they would be fully assured in Christ. He prayed for them. He's a great model of prayer for us as well. We ought to be people who wrestle with God, who agonise with God in prayer for those we love. And you know what? God was blessing that. Because if you go back to, uh, to chapter 1, the, 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 that gospel, that true gospel that, that uh, Paul preached at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, that Epaphras heard, that Epaphras took back to Colossae, that he preached to the, the, the people there and they believed and they put their uh, stake their lives on, that gospel is actually growing and it's bearing fruit all over the world. Have a look at what Paul says in in verse 6. In verse 6 he says uh, about the gospel, the gospel that has come to you all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And it was. If you have a look at that map on the front of your bulletin there, uh, in, in such, just, just in their little part of the world, let alone the rest of the world, just in their little part of the world, in such a short time, there were now churches in Pergamon, in Thyatira, in Sardis, in Smyrna, in Philadelphia, in Laodicea, and also in Ephesus. They are the seven churches of Revelation, aren't they? And you know what says Paul? 
that same gospel is growing and bearing fruit in you. Uh, the, the, the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Growing and bearing fruit in their lives. And that is the fruit of faith and love which springs from hope. Now, today, this true word of the gospel is still being blurred and blunted. Um, There are people in churches who want to take away from the gospel, uh, especially in the name of, of doing things together and being united and presenting a united front. Uh, In my own experience, uh, I find it very difficult sometimes with other church leaders because they want to talk about God the Creator, God the Father and His Son Jesus. But when it gets down to Christ actually being punished on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin... They say, oh, we, we, just, we don't talk about that much, we just assume it. But that's the crux. That's the critical point of the gospel. That's what makes us different from Jews. Right? And so they take away from the gospel in the name of unity. But true unity is unity in the great truths of the gospel. Uh, It is not true unity when we get together uh, having watered down the great truths. That's false unity. True unity is unity with those who believe the gospel that Paul taught. Now there are others who, they don't want to take away from the gospel, they want to add to the gospel uh, with new teachings, with new and higher experiences which very often sound rather spiritual but which blur and blunt and diminish the gospel. And so, whereas the others are gospel minus, they might be gospel plus. But in the end, I figure it's just plus because there's rarely any gospel there. Now, as we therefore think about ourselves um, and our maturity as individuals and as a church, Colossians therefore becomes somewhat of a blueprint for us. It tells us we need to be crystal clear, we need to be razor sharp about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Because if we're not crystal clear, if we're not razor sharp, then we're vulnerable to those who would blur and blunt the gospel. We need to be crystal clear, we need to be razor sharp so that we can not only know the truth but we can discern error and we can name it for what it is and not be moved by it so that we can stand firm so that we can be mature. Now in the New Testament church How is a mature church defined? It's by three things. Faith, love and hope. So let's make sure that we're that kind of church. Let's make sure that we're that kind of Christian. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, the love of Paul and Epaphras in taking the true message of the gospel to Colossae. Father, we thank you that this letter is written for our benefit uh, so that uh, we may also be sharpened and that our vision may be clarified. We pray, Father God, that we would have a clear and sharp understanding of the gospel and that that would exhibit itself uh, in love for one another and a love and a desire to share that gospel message with others. For we have a hope, a sure and a certain hope of everlasting life because of Christ's death on our behalf and his resurrection. Help us, Lord God, with our fidelity that we would be faithful to Christ and that we would stand firm and mature in the true word of the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.